when the virus first sort of came about, it was said that black people can't catch the virus. So even though obviously I'm not a doctor, I don't, I'm not trained in that field, but you know, I was starting to believe it. So I, 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 well, I don't understand really? that. Where Is that like black people from? can't get lice? Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. But, but what, what, what is the scientific basis that, or argument that can be made about that? Right. Well, that was the thing. There was no, like, scientific thing behind it. But it, there was, was no scientific a, thing behind it. But remember, everyone that was contracting the virus was, at the time, of a Caucasian race or non-Black race. So... So I mean, yeah, but that got that's that got squashed pretty quickly. It did, but yeah. that was the question. Once Idris was infected, I knew it was legit. So I was like, oh, because <laughs> <laughs> Idris is the mark, yo. <laughs> Welcome to the Jealous Vegan, a podcast about healthy eating, habit change, and the hurdles we all need help overcoming. I'm Jennifer Hunley, co-founder of the Jealous Vegan, also known as The Voice. Today we are joined by. April Cunningham, confidence coach, co-founder of The Jealous Vegan, also known as The Influencer. Jendai Jackson, owner of Jendai Asha Creative, also known as The Entrepreneur. Lisa Carter, founder of Kinetic Fitness, also known as The Balancer. Lawrence Rassall, The Weekend Chef, also known as The Artisan. the world has been enveloped in coronavirus for quite some time, we thought we'd take a moment to talk about how it's affecting some communities at a much higher rate than others. And if you've been watching the news, especially here in the United States, it's clear that communities of color seem to be disproportionately affected, both in terms of infection rates as well as death rates by the coronavirus. Was this something that was surprising to anybody? No. No. Mm-mm. Actually, I take that. I think it is a, a bit alarming because initially, I mean, it was hearsay that black people could not contract the virus. I don't know if anyone else remembered Mm -hmm. that, but when the virus first sort of came about, it was said that black people can't catch the virus. So even though obviously I'm not a doctor, I don't, I'm not trained in that field, but you know, I was starting to believe it. So I, 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 I don't understand that. Is that like black people can't get lice? Yes, exactly. Right. But but what 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 is the scientific basis or argument that can be made made about that? Right. Well, that was the thing. There was no like scientific thing behind it. But there was was no scientific thing behind it. But remember, everyone that was contracting the virus was at the time of a Caucasian race or non-black race. So. So I mean, yeah, but that got that's that got squashed pretty quickly. It did, but yeah. that was the question. Once Idris was infected, I knew it was legit. So right. I was like, oh, we gotta take this <laughs> because Idris is the mark, yo. Ah, audience, oh my god. Um, I, I don't understand. So so it's like how I, I find it to be the same as like when people act like only men are susceptible to a certain kind of emotion. Like most men feel this way or most women feel this way. Anytime you start saying most, there's bound to be outliers. You cannot say that black people cannot contract a virus. That would insinuate that there's some biological difference between 
uh, blacks and whites that makes them more immune to this particular virus. And there was no scientific evidence to back it up. Right. Nothing. Correct. Which, yeah. But what people were I saying, mean, I, I my mind, that saying. it even could. But keep in mind, what was the what's the disease as far as that affects uh, the bones where they break easily? What's, what's the term? What's the medical term? Osteopenia. Oh. One more time. Osteoporosis or osteopenia. Well, osteoporosis affects everyone. So yes. that must not be the one you mean. And, and women more than men. Yeah, I felt like people were saying in the beginning that black people kind of have like higher immune systems, which is why exactly. it's harder for them to catch the virus. Um, I think that can only be said, not for black people in America, I think that can only be said if you live in an area where somehow you are exposed to more germs and more pathogens on a regular basis, like an underdeveloped country, then your immune system is probably stronger and you probably have better capabilities to fight off uh, a disease. But if you're the average person living in America, we're all susceptible the same way. It doesn't matter what you look like. But I, I did I mean, hear we that, know that going now. around. Yeah. And, and now then to the purpose of this topic is, is really around the susceptibility and I guess the higher uh, incidence of death among the African-American population, that whole notion that uh, we are not susceptible was completely flipped. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're more susceptible, not necessarily because of our bi biology, but because More of stuff. the other factors that might inhibit us from being able to get the proper health care. Yeah. Agreed. So let's look at the numbers, right? Because I, I want to make sure that we're being factual, since clearly there's a lot of conjecture and urban legend out there. But um, I think it was probably in mid-April that the statistics started to bear out this difference between people of color and and other people, right? Because they looked at really um, African-Americans or black people, and for the sake of this discussion, I'd like to stick with black because it's easier to say, uses fewer syllables, um, and non-blacks, which would be Hispanics, Asians, and whites. And so the difference between blacks and all the other groups is that 60% of individuals hospitalized for the coronavirus, and this is information taken from the CDC, by the way. So I would like to think that it's not politicized or trying to tell a story, but simply reporting information. So they released this study that said, they, they looked at uh, a group of people who were in a hospital, I think it was about 580 folks, and they said 60% of those who were, have been hospitalized with a confirmed case of coronavirus were non-white, 60%. Now, if you look at the population of the United States, that's a pretty high number, right, because, um, Non-whites don't make up that high a percentage of the general population. 33% of those who were hospitalized were black, though blacks only made up 18% of the population of the area. And 8% of those who were hospitalized were Hispanic, though they comprised 14% of the population. So black people had a disproportionately high hospitalization rate compared to all other races relative to their population as well. Whereas even Hispanics, which you would consider people of color, perhaps with some of the same um, disadvantages that we're gonna talk about, were hospitalized less than the percentage of the population that they make up. So I think it's pretty clear um, 
And, and so while that was a, a smaller study, right, 580 people in one area, um, multiple studies have been done and numbers have been evaluated across the country and they found this to be the case in lots of different places. And so this theme continues to come up that even though there is nothing about black people that makes us more susceptible to contracting the disease, like nothing inherent in our DNA. However, we seem to have a more adverse reaction to it and a higher rate of death. So. And let's talk about why that is. Okay. That's because where we're headed. First thing is, I mean, Avi, we're the jealous vegan diet. I mean, let's talk about what that impacts, the access to proper food and the proper um, medical attention and also like naturopathic attention, like how to heal naturally and how to provide what the body needs in order to uh, optimize the immunal response. Yeah, That's one take. Yeah. I mean, but of course it extends even further than diet. I mean, to answer your question that you posed at the very beginning, um, Jen, like, were you surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. Um, but I also didn't think about it until the news reports came out, until I was watching, I don't know, CNN, and they went through the reasons why, such as living conditions, such as our work circumstances, um, you know, living in densely populated areas, um, to April's point, being further from grocery stores, living, you know, on food deserts and multi-generational households. Like, once they started to break it down... It's like, oh, well, of course. And these things that I just mentioned play a role in many other disadvantages, you know, that, that arise when there's some sort of an emergency that emerges, you know, that comes out in our, in our world. So, yeah, so, so many things. And it's just, it's sad because it's just, we're just at such a disadvantage. But, you know... Generally speaking, and I, I think that the it's a perfect storm, mm-hmm. right? It's the access, it's the knowledge, it's the um, the ability to heal and to recognize and to identify and to get medical attention, um, and to ask for medical attention. To, I mean, so many things. And this is not to paint a bleak a bleak picture. We certainly don't want to be uh, a Debbie Downer uh, audience. We are showing that there, there's so many things. We talk about this in The Jealous Vegan. There's so many things that affect someone's overall health. And this absolutely is a health concern. Um, we, every one member of this team is a person of color, a black person, uh, self-identified. And so the idea being that there are factors, other factors that um, are external to, to just the body itself or just a virus itself or a threat itself. But there's so many other factors that can determine your overall health um, that need to be taken into consideration as you're navigating whatever health journey, whatever that may be for fighting COVID or resisting COVID or anything else. Yeah, so we've, we've talked about food deserts before, but for those who maybe are um, unfamiliar, would someone like to define that? Mm-hmm. I live in a food desert. As do I. Living in Southeast DC. As do I. Um, s- I don't I don't remember what you guys' specific definition was. I'm not sure if I was um, on that podcast that day, but how I define it, and I'll put it as like and in how in terms of how I live in it, I can't find healthy food around me. 
Like, it's just impossible. If I want a salad, I have to drive pretty far to find, I have to drive outside of my community to find a salad. If I want plant-based food, I have to go across the bridge to find that. Like, it's just not accessible in my community. And the types of restaurants or, or food spots that are close are all chicken wing delivery um, Yums, Jerry, Chinese carryout, yeah, all that, all that kind of stuff that definitely are foods that I want to stay away from as someone who tries to be plant based. So, is that is that around the the definition of what you guys? Yeah, okay. I would also add that not just as far as restaurants where we may frequent, um, but as far as uh, grocery stores. I mean, I think that's the biggest contributor as far as what constitutes as a food desert is as far as having a lack of access to an arraignment of healthy or fresh fruits and vegetables uh, in addition to what Jindy said as far as not having that. That also constitutes as a food desert. Yep, exactly. So I think the grocery stores is kind of the pivotal point, but... What I have recognized in the midst of coronavirus and is just the options to get food brought to me. That right. even though Jenny and I live in different parts of Southeast DC, we both live across the river from where the preponderance of healthier takeaway food is available. And so some of those places don't deliver to us, which means that we have to then go out in order to try to, to get access to it. But um, if we scale it back even just to the grocery store, Imagine that not only is the grocery store that has fresh food not readily available or easily accessible, but that you may need to take public transportation in order to get to it. Mm -hmm. And so how does that then increase your exposure or your opportunity for exposure to a highly contagious virus? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too, that there's there's a lot to um, how the food is obtained, like for somebody with a car to drive across the bridge is like not such a big thing. It's kind of a pain, but it's not a big thing. But there's so many people who don't have that type of access um, and just simply can't get to better stores. And so even if they wanted to eat, you know, more plant based or more consciously, it's just not available um, to them. And I think that is the part that is really the saddest thing is even if people wanted to change their habits some people might be in a position where they just physically cannot and you're just kind of stuck with with where you are. Um, and I think that that's really uh, disappointing, for sure. The quality of the produce also. I mean, let's say I you agree. had, there is a distinction. I, I lived in Southwest D.C. until recently and there was a Safeway at the end of my block. On the next block, I could walk there. Sure, I could get you know, some plant-based milks and some plant-based options, but the produce section was busted. Like you have to find the organics plus the organics was higher. And I only point out organics because of the minimal use of pesticides. We're talking about healthy foods. So if you're you're looking for optimal, then you're gonna look for the all natural foods. The 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 uh the produce section was was a wasteland in comparison to in comparison to the Whole Foods that was eight blocks from my house. Like, sure, I had to drive to it. I could even walk to it on a nice day. But just to compare produce section to produce section, um, you know, in, in the Safeway, things could 
be more brown, more wilted, softer. Romaine lettuce supposed to be crisp. It might be a little bit soft, like it's been sitting there. Um, and just the access to it. So it's not just it's not just the how, how a food desert isn't described just by how accessible the grocery store is, but also like what's accept, what's accessible there. When we went to uh, you went to into coronavirus lockdown, for example, or I should say quarantine. Um, in certain neighborhoods, I think Jenny, you and I talked about this. There's gonna all the canned goods are gonna come off, exactly. pork and beans, and the different things are gonna come off the shelves because that's what people are gonna buy because that's what they can afford. Um, versus being able to buy some of the fresher food, frozen foods, um, frozen vegetables, even to and, and what that looks like and how often it's restocked and the quality of the produce that's presented there makes a huge difference and it absolutely is noticeable if, um, to the naked eye. That's the other thing I was going to say, too, is um, we're talking about uh, the produce maybe not being as fresh or having set out for longer. Um, there is this breaking uh, the dietary cycle, right? And so sometimes in neighborhoods where things aren't readily available, even when they are available, people don't purchase them because they don't maybe know what to do with them. Maybe they don't they haven't, you know, eaten asparagus and things like that so much in their life. And then that causes uh, those stores don't stock those items either because they don't they don't sell in those areas. And so I think it's really a compounded problem of like, are people buying it? Are they using it? You don't ship it there. Then they don't have it. And then when they go for it, it's not there. You know, it's it's oh, right. a cycle of problems in, in, in yeah, communities. Yeah, agreed. And so I think, um, so food is a big part of it, right? We've kind of dissected that, I think, pretty well. I was really also surprised when you look at who they said has the more, who's more likely to be, um, have an adverse response if they are affected or infected by coronavirus. They listed all of these pre-existing health conditions. And so I think um, Dr. Fauci, who was leading the effort from the White House um, and then the Center for, I think, Allergy and Infectious Medicine, mentioned, you know, this is simply pointing out a health disparity that has already existed uh, in some communities. Mm -hmm. And so I, I looked at it and I'm just going to run through a couple of the conditions and the likelihood that a black person would have any of these pre-existing conditions. So the first one is heart disease, which was linked to high blood pressure. And so blacks are 40% more likely to have blood, high blood pressure and 20% more likely to die from heart disease than whites. Another one they mentioned was asthma or chronic respiratory diseases. So 13.4% of black children have asthma compared to 7.4% of white children. They mentioned people being immunocompromised and they have a whole list of things but included smoking in that list, which I think we find uh, more so in poor communities than in communities of affluence. Severe obesity was one of the pre-existing health conditions. Four out of five black women are overweight or obese. Diabetes. Blacks are 60% more likely than whites to have been diagnosed with diabetes. Kidney disease. Blacks suffer from kidney failure three times more so than their white counterparts. And then finally, liver disease, which is the ninth leading cause of death for non-Hispanic blacks, 45 to 64. Black men are 60% more likely to have liver and irritable bowel disease cancer than white men. So for every single one of those pre-existing conditions, there is, you are more likely to have one of those if you're black than if you're not. 
And these are all statistics based on the United States, by the way. So let's talk about what is possible. Let's talk about, uh, yeah, I hear that and it just makes me feel like oh, crushed, really, like, oh my God. Um, and I think there's so much power that we have individually to take um, agency over our own health. And a lot of it, a lot of it has to do with education. Not all, but a lot of it has to do with personal education and motivation. And I'd love to talk about that. Like, here we are, every one of us is a, a black person. How are we, and yet I could probably say this, correct me if I'm wrong, but every one of us is an exception in terms of uh, our choices, our experiences, how we choose to approach life, how we choose to pro, uh, how we choose to create the circumstances that we need in order to achieve optimal health. Uh, can we talk a little bit about that? I'm curious about you guys. How do you manage, how is it that you, all of you manage to be an exception in one way or another? I think it's a good question. Um, I think the first part of it starts with the fact that the majority of us don't have jobs in the service industry where we've had to leave our homes every day in order to go to work, right? And so not only that, but we all have health insurance and we all have sick leave. And maybe maybe I'm including you, Lisa, but maybe I shouldn't because um, I know you have a, a slightly different experience um, in your work field of, your chosen field of, uh, what's the word but this isn't occupation? just about Corona. This is in general, like we, we are exceptions, right? We even have this podcast because there's a consciousness that's different here than- Agreed. Certainly I've seen. So I'm just curious, and, and more general, I just want to open the question to like more general. How is it that we manage to be an exception? Well, I think, I think that's part of it, right? You mentioned education, but part of it is we have jobs where we have health insurance and we have the ability to stay home when we're sick. And so if we have a nagging or chronic condition even, it, it can, it's possible that we've been able to mitigate it because our work circumstances have allowed for that over the course of time. And that there are other people who don't. So they get sick, they can't go to the doctor, they can't take off work, they just get worse, and their health continues to decline and it just becomes like a, you know, a snowball that gathers as it rolls down the hill. But so I for think, me, that's part of it. I think in, in addition to that, April, I mean, you two said it already, education. We have access to information. I'm trying to think, like, how did I come to be on this plant-based path? Like, where did I learn this from? And I, I, don't, I don't know. Was it like a Netflix documentary or maybe the people that I surround myself with? who all have access to information um, or have learned through family experiences, right? Like things that have happened to our parents and our grandparents that have motivated us or inspired us to do better for ourselves. And so I, I, it's, it's who you surround yourself with, what, you're, what you have access to on TV. Like, I, I mean, a lot of my information came from documentaries that you guys recommended to me. It came from articles that I've read that you guys have sent to me. Really, it's my community. My community got me to where I am right now, to where I see myself as an exception to all the, all the like you said, the crushing statistics that Jen just mentioned. It's, it's my support system is there. Yeah, I, I agree with Jindy and Jennifer. Um, I think the reason why we are exceptions are, as was mentioned, education, 
And then as far as, uh, I don't want to call it affluence, but as far as what we have access to, as, as Jennifer mentioned, you know, we're able to have health insurance to a degree and stay home. Um, you know, I suffer from some reoccurring things. And so it's, it's not a big deal for me to just utilize a sick day um, and stay at home as long home. as I need to. Exactly. And work at home. Exactly. But I also think that um, just being more aware and just more conscious, I think that is an exception um, because, as Jindy mentioned, we all have access to that information, um, but it's what we choose to do with it. Just having that critical mind and that critical thinking and just not taking uh, food and, and, and taking media and what's before us as this is all I have as far as just making an assessment and educating ourselves and putting it into action. I think that, in my opinion, can be an exception. Many people, uh, you know, if the food that they have in front of them, they're going to eat it. Um, am I making sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, for so, sure. Yeah. yeah so that, in that way, I believe that we we are the exception in that regard. I was going to like what you said. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Lisa. No, I was just going to say, I think that um, to the same point, two big things when I'm looking at us all together, the thing that stands out to me about how we're all kind of the same is um, we have differences in exposure, I think, than the average person, maybe. Like all of us, what I can see about all of us is that we have travel places, we have exposure with other cultures other people, how they live. And most of us, actually all of us from a young age, got to see how other people do things, right? And so we weren't always in that box of, I only eat this or I only hang out with this type of people. All of us, uh, diversity has played a huge part in how we see the world. And sometimes I think that that's lacking uh, for people, they they live in the same neighborhood their whole life with the same group of friends. They they don't ever fan out to know that um, there is a different life out there. Like Jindy was talking about, you know, all of us share articles back and forth. But that's it comes from we're all very different in this group, too. So Jen always sends this stuff that I would never look up myself ever. But then I read the article and I'm like, oh, that was interesting, though, Um And so I think there's an argument to be made about embracing diversity and being okay with something that's not familiar um, because that is how you learn and that is how you grow and that is how you can make other decisions, different decisions. That's how you learn about plant-based diets and, and, you know, all the things that other people already know about. To them, also, it's like not a big thing. I mean, we, we... April and Jen and I, we traveled to Spain together and just taking in that culture, how much they walk. That was a huge standout to us. Like, oh, yeah. So even coming back to the U.S., we try to incorporate that more in our life. Where can I walk to? Where can I walk to go get groceries instead of taking the car? And like those little things, it's like the butterfly effect, right? Where it's like one small Mm -hmm. thing has a huge impact down the road. It's like a ripple effect, right? Um, and I, so I think that's where it starts is the the diversity and the the stepping out Acceptance of your comfort zone, of, yeah, yeah, and learning from other people. 
and other cultures. Another I reason, love that, Lisa. Oh, go ahead, Jindy. Another reason, another thing that I want to point out that Lawrence said, I kind of want to highlight it. He mentioned critical thinking. Um, I think that we were all educated in critical thinking as we were being brought up. And I think that that's, that's what makes us different as well. Um, you know, instead of eating whatever's on our plates and seeing the adverse effects on our body and just, you know, passing them off or not even thinking about them, we have these critical thinking skills to say, okay, my skin is breaking out. Why is my skin breaking out? Or the, right. there's, a, there's a black ring, you know, around my neck. What's, what's that coming from? Like, I think that we had the privilege of being taught how to think and how to question things. Um, and, and, you know, as opposed to just going along with what centuries, you know, or, or whatever, d decades or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, that's a really of, good um, Habits have done to us as people of color. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I was thinking about that. Uh, to piggyback on all those thoughts, you got me thinking about my first memory of, like, when was I first aware that I needed to be mindful of what I ate or how I looked at my health and my body. And I remember it was actually uh, my father's, my paternal grandmother. We used to go to hot shops. I'm dating myself. We used to go to hot shops and she would get the fish. I love the fried fish. Love the fried fish. She did too. And she put it on the plate and then she we'd sit down. It was a place, it was like an eatery buffet kind of place. They put the food on the plate and then you sit down and you talk. It was our time. But I remember very young her, she would take a napkin and she would put it around the fish and she would squeeze the oil out. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I remember her, you know, she never explained actually. She just would be like, well, you know, we want to, we want to minimize the amount of fat, I think, or something to that. Some real high level, real high level. And she left it because my grandmother was a woman of a few words. She didn't say much. But I remember thinking, oh, well, if she's doing that, then I need to do that. And then I started to research fat. Was fat bad? And at the time, all fat was bad. We know now right. that's not the truth. The 80s. But all fat was bad. So then I started to think, oh, well then, and then as you delve into research, you find out, okay, well, and as we become more educated as a human race, we realize that not all fat is the same. Avocado is much better in fat, in terms of fat than, you know, a steak per se. Um, but it was that moment, that crucible moment for me that I, I immediately went to. It was just like, oh, that's when I first had the epiphany. Like, I have control here. Matter of fact, I have influence over my body and my health, and I'm not alone also in recognizing that, that that's an option. Um, and I bring it up only because, to piggyback on what you guys said, that I think I was introduced very early that my health, health good health for me is an option first. Right, exactly. And that I have influence over said good health. It's not just like, a victim of whatever my community brings to me or whatever my experience has brought to me, but I, I have choice, I have agency, and I have influence. And I think, to answer my own question, uh, with along with you guys, I think that's that's part of it for me, is that I, I recognize that there was a choice um, and there is agency in, in being able to decide how I wanted to approach my own, uh, my own healthfulness. Can I just highlight the difference between how 
we've used two, we've used the same word. So April just talked about community and in much of what we discussed in terms of, um, you know, the, the rate at which people of color or especially black people are um, impacted by certain health conditions. And we think about within a community that exists. But then Jindy used the word community to talk about how she's been influenced, and so did Lisa to a, to a degree, and exposed to people who changed the way she thought about food and helped to realize that there was another way to do things. And so I think that it's a beautiful thing for us to look at how we frame community. Is it just the people who live around you? Or do you choose to create a community of people who will help you see that you know, being on blood pressure medicine or having diabetes or having kidney disease or being obese, like that's not necessarily the norm. And maybe there is a different way to look at how you're feeding yourself and taking care of your health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. On spot, on point. I was looking at the, um, the part of the article that you sent us from the CDC, Jen, on what can be done. And when I was reading through it or skimming through it really quickly, I felt personally responsible because it does say that we need to, you know, community organizations like, I guess, like us, you know, we can help to prioritize resources, um, address the needs of vulnerable populations. So I began thinking like, what more do we need to do? And I think it actually starts with this conversation and this podcast. Like I, I hope this touches someone's ears who needs to hear it so that they can flip the program in their head and start questioning things and, you know, it get, you know, just touch the community in some sort of way where it will help to save someone's life when there is an emergency situation, or even if there isn't an emergency type of a situation out here. So, I mean, if there's more that we can do for sure, if there's like a document or resources or a list or something to put up on the website, then great. But I think it starts with us having this conversation. I couldn't agree more. I I hope, I hope that whoever's listening, um, if you've listened this far in the podcast and clearly something's resonating with you, and please know that you're not alone. If you're needing to make a choice, you're not not alone, um, and you absolutely can, um, especially if you are a person of color in a food desert or a a community, an area where there's not very many people like you um, willing to make the choice or able to make the choice to do something different. Please know that uh, that you're not alone and the Jealous Vegan team is here with you. Yes, so if you liked what you heard and you think someone else will benefit, please share this episode with them. Uh, send them to our website, thejealousvegan.com. And of course, you can find us across social media as well. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard today, please take two minutes and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. And in the meantime, don't let perfection be the enemy of progress.